Hi, Victoria. How are you? Hi. Well, thank you. How are you? Good, good. Thank you. <laughs> nice to hear you. Yes, nice to hear you too. Oh, you've almost kind of got the room decorated already. I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you well, but um... I'm driving for a minute. Oh, that's fine. We still have plenty of time to start paying people in. Welcome, everyone. Uh, if you think like this room is something your friends would like, feel free to share it. And we will start in around seven minutes. So, thank you. Hi, Z. How are you? Nice to see you. I'm sorry, I couldn't I couldn't hear you. Yeah, I'm sorry too. I think when I get there it'll be better. Hi Kyle, can you hear us? How are you today? Um, in case you don't know, um, to unmute, the button is all the way on the bottom right hand. There's a little microphone symbol. Is it so, working now? Can you hear me? Yeah, now perfect. we can. Perfect. How Hello. are you today? I'm pretty well. How are you? Good, good. It's raining now. <laughs> it's getting really fall. Fall. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it could be worse. <laughs> so, Hello. is there supposed is there is there a it's supposed to be like video or a camera or no? No, it's just audio. And then I put um paper on top. I don't yeah. can see it. So yeah, I do. Yeah, 
if you refer to figures, I would just say which figure number you're on, because there's no way to point to it because everyone ex by themselves. So, um, yeah, so that's okay. Any other? Any other questions before we start? We still have a few minutes. I'm sharing it now on Twitter and so on that we're starting. I, I guess I I haven't been able to join any of these previously to know, is it the format is sort of like a journal club type thing or uh, just a discussion? Well, kind of a mix. Okay. Kind of in between so i'll start by introducing you and then usually victoria asks like a couple of interview questions and then um that's how it usually works and then it would be time for you like give you know however you want to present your work and then like a lot of questions so got it and the the, pre the presenting of the work should aim for like I mean, just going through the figures, maybe like 10 or 15 minutes or something, or? Yeah, you can also go longer if you... Longer yeah. okay. It, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, it's more up to how much time you have. We we have some time, so <laughs> you don't have to rush or anything for us. I have time. I just don't want to bore people, but I have time. Oh, yeah. No, no, you won't. <laughs> Hi, Dr. Shah. She will be happy. Hi, how are you today? Hi everyone, how are you? Good, good, thank you. We're just, um, Kyle is new to Clubhouse, you were a little bit. Um, Welcome Kyle. Talking about that. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, um, we'll start in around two minutes. Um, you know, today happened a lot, so yeah. <laughs> You know, with Trump being so peanut and stuff, so it could be that people are. Oh uh, uh, yeah, maybe there's a watch party. Yeah, like a lot is going on right now, like with Red, Trump, and oh, Trump got so peanuts today. So there will be a lot of rooms about those type of discussions today. Yeah, that's not that's not, but. As I said, we, we record these rooms and also people that are in Asia that join usually um, not in their time zone right now. So, but that's why we make recordings so people can listen to it. And people usually do. We have a lot of listenings afterwards. So. Can you hear me now? Yes, I can hear you. It's perfect. I'm so relieved. I thought it would be really great to go on a walk during this and then suddenly there was no Wi-Fi, but okay, that's great. All I was going to say earlier besides hello, Kyle, hello, Dr. Shaw, yep. is that we've, it's, we're having a 40 degree difference between morning and night every day. It's just like starts out in the 40s, ends up in the oh, 80s. Oh yeah, we have that too currently. Uh, well, not in the 80s. I, I don't know. I still do everything in Celsius. It's 19 degrees Celsius, but it started like 12 or something. Like it's cold in the morning. Yeah, yeah. it was like 7.5 this morning. 
here. I'm doing the same, Katerina, but don't say to anyone. <laughs> like, I don't know why. You know, my great grandmother in Portugal, before a long time ago, when she was young, there was another, you know, before Euro was Skuldush and before that was something else, um, Reis. And she still calculated always everything in that currency from when she was younger. And I feel like I'm turning into her already. <laughs> like, ridiculous, but anyways. Okay, I think we can start. So welcome everyone to Science Society and um, a special welcome uh, to Kyle. And uh, before we start, uh, I'll give you a short introduction and then we'll, Victoria will will ask a few interview questions. So welcome. And thanks for making that account go through the trouble for us <laughs> to come here. Thank you. Um, thanks for inviting me. And um, Kyle McCracken, he is an MD, PhD. And he did his bachelor at the Xavier University in Cincinnati, Ohio, and then his PhD at the University of Cincinnati. And um, his medical school at the University of Cincinnati. And then later he did his residency in pediatrics at the Boston Children's Hospital and um, a fellowship in the pediatric nephrology at Boston's Children's Hospital. And um, it's really an honor having you here. Um, your research is really interesting. And yeah, as I said, Victoria, the stage is yours for asking the interview question. Thank you. All right, thank you, Katarina. And again, welcome, Kyle. We're so happy to have you here and so appreciative of your time. And so what what my question is, is to get a little bit of um, background information about you so we can know about the person who is presenting the work in addition to the work you do. So I'm what I'd like to know is if you can think back in your life to a time that you recognized that you felt really interested in science, that science was something that you had a particular fascination for or felt connection with. And that could be any time in your life, childhood or, um, you know, a school experience or a relative or anything that comes to mind. Yeah, sure. Um, I guess in, in thinking about what made me interested in, in science as I know it, it actually kind of happened late when I was in college. Um, you know, I had always been as a child sort of interested in nature and anatomy and biology, um, you know, but I went to college sort of as a pre-medical student, um, you know, taking the requisite, you know, didactic courses without much um, understanding at all for what sort of a, a career in, in science and research was or that it even existed or and what it meant. Um, so then I just sort of serendipitously uh, I think when early on in my junior year of college, I uh, had some time and needed money. So I got a job um, working at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, actually, which is where I am now, um, just as a part-time sort of laboratory assistant um, doing sort of odds and ends in the lab. And then I, you know, I just really, it was the first time I was exposed to, 
you know, science research and kind of what that meant and what, um, how projects were done and what the, what the career was. And, you know, after being there for about a year, I got more involved in a few projects and that's what prompted me to go into, uh, uh, to get a PhD as well as MD when I went to, uh, for postgraduate school. Thank you. Thank you. It's interesting. We had a speaker last week and he had a, um, a similar story. He, I believe maybe Katarina, you remember he had his start in, um, I don't know, engineering or something, and then got a job in a hospital and, and it was experiences with people that made him really start caring about caring and, 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 and kind of went from there. So thank goodness you, you got that job. That's, that is really serendipitous. And yeah. so then from, yeah, then from your PhD work, can you take us along a path? How did you get from there to here to the work that you're presenting today? Maybe a few, um, you know, more momentous events that you would like to share? Yeah, sure. So um, during my PhD, I, you know, it's, it's not a stretch. I actually did sort of similar work to what I'm doing now in a different system. So I started my PhD not knowing what I was, you know, going to work on, like most students. Um, and the lab focused on, it was in a developmental biology division, so a really basic science division. But the lab at the time that I joined was starting to use human stem cells mostly as a model system to ask developmental questions because it, it's, it has a lot of strengths as a model system to ask really basic me mechanistic questions. And basically my PhD ended up being just that, which was using, using what we called human sort of stem cell derived endoderm. And just so you know, endoderm is sort of an early embryonic structure or germ layer that forms most of the lining of your GI tract and uh, your pancreas and, and liver and a few associated digestive organs. Um, and the more we use that model and learned to sort of, uh, sort of how cell fate decisions were made in the early endoderm, then we were able to um, sort of guide or direct the differentiation of in vitro from, from stem cells to endoderm and then to various different lineages like intestine or stomach or esophagus or lung. And, and this led to some of the first described um, organoids, which are sort of three-dimensional tissues derived from stem cells, from human um, pluripotent stem cells. Um, and so we had a lot of success with that. And it was a lot of fun for me, uh, filling the role of trying to piece together or puzzle together how, how to model different steps of normal development, but how and recapitulate those in vitro uh, to guide the cells very specifically to, to tissues of interest. So we had a lot of um, success with that. And it was, it, it was always a really fascinating work. And for some reason, th these were those, these were the questions that have always been really interesting to me and what I'm really drawn to. Um, so that was that. And then I had to go back when I finished my PhD and do, I had to finish medical school and then do my clinical training in pediatrics and then PD and then a, a fellowship, which ended up being pediatric nephrology. And I and chose nephrology because the kidney um, was always, you know, on a physiologic level and in a clinical setting, it's a really interesting organ. It's very sophisticated and very precise. And I was always just drawn to the, 
the really um, sort of quantitative aspects of nephrology and, and how how good the kidneys are at managing different things in your body. So I did pediatric nephrology fellowship in Boston um, at Boston Children's. And when I was starting to, to kind of get my postdoc research started, I basically, so, you know, I moved to the kidney, which is where my clinical interest drew me. And then I really just started recapitulating the same process that I had done in graduate school, which was trying to learn everything we knew about how tissues develop, in this case, the kidney, and then recapitulate those processes in vitro, figure out methods and protocols to recapitulate that process to develop three-dimensional structures um, from stem cells that resemble the developing um, organ, which in this case, again, is the kidney. Thank you. Thank you. Well, this will be, this will be really amazing and, you know, to hear more about the process and, and methodology and, of course, the applications. And, and so um, at this point, the mic is yours. And you had asked about the, um, excuse me, my brain is kind of turning off for a minute, powering down, um, the, how, how we're going to go about the room. And so if you'd like to have a Q&A following or Q&A leading, your discussion, that's up to you. And we're here to moderate that. And um, sometimes guests will put questions in the room chat and we can also share those with you. So thank you, Kyle, and um, take it away. Okay, thank you. I will say, I, I think everybody has the paper. So I'll kind of walk through the paper and give, give an overview. I gather that there's probably a diverse group. So I can give, I'll start by giving some, some basic background information. Um, but in terms of the Q&A, I think we can definitely do one at the end, but I'm happy to be interrupted at any point so people can speak up if they have questions at any time, and I'd be happy to stop and explain. <clears throat> so the, the paper that we published recently is, is really, it's focusing on kidney development. And kidney development um, is a particular challenge in this field of sort of stem cell tissue engineering because it derives from two very distinct populations of cells in the early embryo. Um, so for example, you know, alternatively, when I was in graduate school, um, in the endoderm, you know, once you, once you were, were, once you were able to, to pattern the cells to adopt uh, a specific identity, that was where most of the hard work was done. Um, and then all of the cells of the organ were sort of contained in that area. The kidney, on the other hand, there's there's two populations that uh, form completely separately in the embryo, and then one of them basically migrates all the way to the other end of the embryo, and then these populations start to interact. So the way I approach kidney tissue engineering uh, from stem cells is that you need to be able to generate uh, both of the, these different progenitor populations, do that very well, and generate very authentic tissue with the long-term goal, which hasn't been realized yet and is not part of this paper, but the long-term goal is to be able to do that really efficiently and combine those two progenitors um, uh, to get, to really sort of kickstart what, how the kidney normally develops. <clears throat> and this paper is really focusing on doing one of those progenitor populations, which um, we typically refer to as, as being called the ureteric bud. So, so to give you a little more detail, when these, when the two populations start to interact, the ureteric bud is a, is an epithelium 
and it interacts with the other tissue, which is sort of called metanephric mesenchyme or, or nephrogenic mesenchyme. Um, the mesenchyme basically starts to, to uh, send signals to the ureteric bud and, and it tells the epithelium to start branching. And kidney development from that point on is really an iterative process where the, the, the bud just continuously branches um, dichotomously. So at every, every tip will form two tips. And this just happens over and over again. And then at each branch tip, the, um, the mesenchyme surrounding the tips are induced to form uh, an epithel a separate epithelial structure that's often called the nephron. And, and collectively, um, the nephron and this ureteric bud will, will form the functional units of the, of the adult kidney. Um, but the reason why part of the, the secret of the kidney and, and why it's so efficient at doing what it does physiologically is because you have so many nephrons. So in, in a human, you have about a half million to two million nephrons total between your two kidneys. And they're all jam packed together into your, you know, your relatively small bean shaped kidneys. <clears throat> and the, the mechanistically, uh, the way development has been able to accomplish um, forming so many nephrons in such a compact space is through this process of branching. Um, because, you know, it just happens and it's exponential. So it's two to the end to get up to 500,000 to 2 million nephrons. And so this process is really the, the, a, the linchpin of, of kidney development. <clears throat> so that's sort of the background. But again, I'm, I'm really going to focus on the branching epithelial structure called the ureteric bud in this paper with the long-term goal of getting these to, to recombine and interact with, with the other progenitor pool. So from, from that background, does anybody have, I hope that was clear, but I, I, it's kind of complicated. So does anybody have any questions so far before I get into the first figure? I think you're doing great. Sounds nice and clear. Thank you. Katarina. All right. No, I was about to say the same. Thank you. All right. So the way, you know, that I, and, you know, many people in this field, um, go about trying to go from stem cells. And again, just to be clear for people, the cells that we call stem cells or pluripotent stem cells are cells that can differentiate into any of the cell types of the body. So, you know, it's classically taught that there's two, um, uh, several thousand cell types. Now with sort of single cell sequencing, there's, you know, probably dozens or hundreds of thousands of different cell types. So these cells in theory can become any of those cells and our challenge from the stem cell tissue engineering standpoint is to really specifically guide them step by step so they only become one or only a select few of those cells <clears throat> and the way we do that is by trying to uh, we modify the signaling environment so so in the developing embryo every cell fate decision for the most part is determined by soluble secreted factors um, of which there's really only a handful and they're just used over and over again at many different um, cell fate step, uh, decision steps. And what we do in, in vitro is try to recreate each of those environments that is going to guide the tissue step by step down the developmental pathway to get, to get it to go where we want. So in figure 1A, 
it's basically just a, a schematized diagram of the different stages that we identified in the beginning that in order to get to our final tissue, these were the steps that the cells had to go through. So, the, you know, within one day, they adopt a primitive street and then a pronephric IM, which is intermediate mesoderm, and then nephric duct, and then finally ureteric butt. In the, the soluble factors that we ended up figuring out how to get this to happen pretty efficiently are shown in the blue boxes. So things like FGF and retinoic acid and, and inhibitors of BMP and TGF-beta were used in different combinations in different sort of sequential ways to, to get this to happen. And most of this figure just shows, um, shows that those steps are happening pretty robustly. So figure 1B is the first stage, the primitive street stage. And as developmental biologists, most of these stages are identified by the expression of specific genes. And so we, a lot of our, our figures will just show uh, gene expression in some way. So whether it's showing the protein level using antibodies or at the uh, mRNA level with things like qPCR or sequencing. So uh, figure 1B is the primitive street stage. So at day one, the, these cells are marked by this factor, TPXT. This is kind of boring. Just, we just show that we can do this very efficiently. This is the first step. Getting to these cells is the first step for many other tissues. So this step is pretty well characterized and people can do this efficiently. And we just, we started there um, and just, um, and this happens uh, pretty easily. The next step is from day one to day three is to induce um, what's called the pronephric mesoderm or pronephric IM. And that's what we're showing by qPCR in figure 1C. Uh, we're showing changes in gene expression over the course of day zero, day one, and day three. So NANOD is a stem cell marker that goes down rapidly. The TBXT goes up at day one, but then we can get it to turn off rather quickly. And the genes, uh, the following three genes are markers of this pronephric mes mesoderm, PATCH2, GATA3, and PATCH8. And we'll use these genes throughout most of the paper because these, these genes mark the ureteric bud and the early progenitors of the ureteric bud. In 1D, we just show the staining at the protein level for these markers. Again, just showing that this is a pretty efficient process. We can get typically um, around 90% of the cells in, in the dish to, to adopt this fate, which is pretty good. Um, and we identify that by the co-expression of GATA3 and PATCH2 there in figure 1E. So up until this point, this day three time point with the in the cells that are shown in 1D, the, this is just done in a, in a very basic, what we call monolayer format. So it's two-dimensional cells in a dish, and they, and they sort of just grow in 2D, uh, and they proliferate pretty uh, rapidly. So the cells are pretty dense. From this point in the protocol, um, we, we introduce a, a three-dimensional element. Uh, because most tissues develop in three dimensions. So we wanted to recapitulate the morphology in the normal three-dimensional interactions that, that, that occur during development. So we just did that by taking these cells, which were 2D, uh, breaking them apart and dissociating them, and then aggregating them together and uh, through different ways to, to get them to, to force them to adopt a three-dimensional structure, which is just basically a sphere. <clears throat> and we cultured them for uh, four days in this three-dimensional format and figure 1F is showing how they change over time uh, from day three to day seven. 
in GATA3, we have a, a cell line that expresses this fluorescent protein M scarlet when GATA3 is expressed. So we use that to identify that we had the right population. Um, and this step was pretty remarkable. This, this, we, when we first started doing this, this was something that we saw in every experiment in every sphere, we would see the same process happen spontaneously where we had two, basically two, we started with a 90% pure population of progenitor cells, but then they auto automatically segregate into two different populations best shown in, in the day seven and figure one F you have the, the really nice sphere that's red for GATA3 expression. And then there's a side population of cells that's usually a smaller population that's negative. And this process is, we still don't really understand completely what's going on and why this is happening, but it happens in more or less 100% of the experiments that I've done so far. So it's, it's a really uh, robust sort of developmental mechanism for sorting out two different populations of cells. <clears throat> In figure 1G, we do the staining, which shows that the, the markers of the lineage that we're interested in, so again, patch 2, data 3, and patch 8, they're really efficiently expressed, but only in one of the populations, that larger population uh, co-expresses these genes. That side population is actually negative for, um, for all of the markers that we looked at. So at first we didn't know what those cells were, um, which led to the next experiment in, in figure 1H, where we did single cell RNA sequencing as a way to sort of un or unbiasedly analyze what these cells might be. Um, and, you know, I'm talking maybe too much about these cells because we really don't focus on them for much of the rest of the paper, but I'm still fascinated by this process. And, and, and I'm hoping to, to, to do more experiments to figure out why these cells are forming and, and what we can use them for. But, but more or less what we showed is that those are actually stromal cells, so sort of supportive cells that, that, that co-develop with the epithelium. So rather than the, the ureteric genes like patch two and data three and patch eight, they express markers characteristic of stromal cells like PDGFR receptor alpha and a few other genes that we show in the supplement. <clears throat> um, and then figure one I is, is showing a specific marker, this ALDH1A3, um, Oh, sorry, I, I, I think I failed to say so far, uh, these cells at day seven in our analysis of the, the single cell sequencing, they're very reminiscent of a structure called the nephrit duct, which is the precursor to the ureteric bud. And in, in, in 1A, you'll see at day seven, we call these nephrit ducts. So this is the structure that migrates all the way across the embryo so that the, the cells, this population of cells can interact with the other progenitors, the metanephric progenitors. Uh, and, and this ALDH1A3 in figure 1I is a very specific marker for just those distal most cells that are the immediate precursors for the ureteric bud. So by the end of this seven-day process, um, we were quite confident and we've been pretty rigorously characterized these cells to know that they're, they're of the right lineage based on all of the genes that they express and we've demonstrated they express. And... They should be the precursors to, to the ureteric bud, which is the branching epithelium. And the next figure will go into to that. <clears throat> and again, stop me if you have any questions. Um, so figure two is really showing how these cells further develop basically over the next week from day seven to day 14. Um, 
And we had known in from previous studies that were done, not from stem cells, but from rodents, mostly mouse and rat, you know, people had done experiments up to 20 years ago or more showing that if you take the ureteric bud out of an embryonic kidney, so a fetal stage kidney, um, you can, you can put it in culture in some sort of three dimensional culture to try to get it to branch and, and sort of develop. And some, many of those factors had been identified from mouse genetic studies. Uh, one of the key and, and most studied one is something called GDNF, um, which is a growth factor secreted from the metanephric progenitors that stimulates the branching of the ureteric bud. So we, we, we re tried to recreate those conditions for these spheres that we were generating and to see whether they would branch similar to how the real nephrid or nephroductor ureteric bud would branch in culture. And what we saw was, you know, one of these satisfying moments where, you know, the morphology of the tissues was very obvious that they were doing sort of the right thing um, or what we were predicting them to do without having to analyze any gene expression or anything. We could tell by the morphology in real time that these cells were behaving like the cells we were hoping to get. <clears throat> so figure 2A shows their growth um, over a one week of culture. And the way we do this is to take those spheres at day seven and embed them in a three-dimensional hydrogel matrix so that they can grow in all, all dimensions and all directions. And it gives them a little more support rather than just you know floating in, in media and suspension. And this process uh, happens, you start out as a very a smooth sphere at day seven. Within you know one to two days, you start to see projections coming out of the sphere, and then over the next several days, these the projections really mature into these epithelial structures that branch at the tips, very similar to how the the normal ureteric bud grows. And in Figure One B, we had a, a nice example showing the iterative branching, where you had a stalk emerge at day nine, it bifurcated uh, by day eleven, and then each one of those branches also bifurcated, showing the sort of iterative process of, of how, how the kidney develops with ureteric branching. So the, these results were really cool and obvious, but we wanted, we needed to confirm with our, our classic sort of molecular techniques that these cells resembled the ureteric bud. So we just did a panel of markers, um, again, GATA3, um, PATCH2, and others that are all still expressed basically throughout all of the epithelium, confirming that they are um, still, you know, consistent with the ureteric lineage. <clears throat> Sorry. But one of the coolest things that we've seen that I think there's a lot of potential in is that they actually organize themselves in a, in a way uh, very similar to the real ureteric bud. So when the ureteric bud is is branching, the tips of the bud are interacting with the, the metanephric mesenchyme that secretes the factor GDNF to stimulate the branching. One of the major receptors for GDNF is, is a protein, a receptor called RET. And when you look at the ureteric bud in vivo, it's RET is only expressed at the very tips of the buds. And that's because that's where the GDNF is secreted by the progenitors. And when, even though we didn't we, even though we didn't have any progenitors sort of surrounding the tips of these cells, we saw very specific expression of RET only in the tips. 
you can see that in figure 1C, sort of in the bottom row, um, it was a really, you know, remarkable localization of, of red expression only to the tips. So, you know, again, suggesting that there's some, there's a good amount of ability of these structures to organize themselves the way that they're genetically programmed to do during development. <clears throat> and the reason why I say I think there's a lot of potential in these cells uh, in, for further studies is these are the tips that will are really driving the morphogenesis and the branching. So, so having these progenitor cells there expressing RET indicate that these cells can behave very similar to um, the, the normal uh, kidney structure or fetal kidney structure. <clears throat> uh, figure 2E shows that um, the, the, the growth in morphogenesis that we saw does indeed depend on GDNF, like the normal kidney. So patients that, that have genetic mutations in GDNF, they, they don't form kidneys. And similarly, when we remove GDNF from the culture medium in, in these organoid cultures, the, the epithelium fails to grow and fails to branch. We actually, um, this, uh, we showed that if we don't kind of put a break on the branching with this chemical U0126, uh, the, the branching is actually sort of out of control and disorganized. So, so we kind of have a balance of pro-branching factors like GDNF and sort of breaks on branching like U0126 to get the, the most authentic looking ureteric bud. The last uh, couple panels of this figure then are sort of getting at um, uh, the developmental sort of functional properties of these cells. So we really, overall, this study was re really, you know, fun to be a part of and we're, the, the tissues we think are very authentic and, and they do things every, that, that the fetal structures should do. But it is in some ways um, still unsatisfying that we only have part of the picture because, you know, again, kidney development relies on two progenitor cells. You know, you have to go step by step and this paper is generating one of those. But it, we really wanted to get to, to start to ask the question, well, what if these cells were combined with the other progenitors, you know, could they function normally? So that inspired us. We tried a few, we tried to test this a few ways and um, didn't have luck until we, until we did the experiment shown in F, which is we took, um, we didn't have, we don't have a great way to get the human uh, progenitors, metanephric progenitors to combine these with. So we use rodent um, or mouse ki uh, fetal kidneys and did the experiment in F where we took uh, the kidneys out of 12 day old mouse embryos and dissociate them into single cells. This, this is established techniques um, for, for mouse embryology that you can dissociate those cells, aggregate them together, and then you can get somewhat normal kidney uh, development in vitro from those cells. So we did that experiment, but we added in a small amount of our cells uh, from our UB organoids or ureteric bud organoids just to see whether our cells could incorporate and participate in the development in vitro knowing that the, the progenitor cells that were in that culture were real bona fide fetal progenitor cells because they came from the mouse fetal kidney. <clears throat> and when we analyzed these structures, we, we did see that our cells persisted. So number one, they survived. We could see with 
using an antibody to label the human cells in the culture, we can see we could see that um, the cells were there, and they actually specifically localized to the right place in the in the blue stained epithelial tips. Uh, this is the ureteric bud. We we always found the human cells in this compartment. Those surrounding red cells are the metanephric progenitors, and we never saw our cells in that compartment. So. This experiment sort of showed, it's a little indirect, but it showed that um, the UB organoids have cells that can integrate within the developing kidney and specifically within the ureteric bud and within the tips of the ureteric bud. But uh, this is one of the focuses of my lab now is to try to figure out other, better ways to, to sort of show the functional properties of these ureteric bud tip cells. So from here, um, this was most of the of the developmental angle. The, the The remainder of the paper is more focusing on the the differentiated cells and the function of the differentiated cells. So if anybody has any questions about Figure One and Two, you can take a minute and and, and answer them uh, if there's anything. Um, let me check in the chat. Just make sure. Yeah. With D. Um. Oh, she was asking, but that I don't know. We can take that in the end, or okay, whatever. Uh, yeah, if, if you know Luke Montagnier's work and um, how what you think of it, but um, yeah, maybe that's a question more for later on. But everything else, I think um, you you already answered <laughs> the Perfect. questions that were that were there. Um, unless Dr. Shah, I don't know, Dr. Shah, you have, uh, do you have questions in the meantime? Um, not for now, but I have lots of questions at the end. I will ask. Thank you for asking. All right. Uh, just a quick question, Kyle. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to pull the diagram. Uh, all right. Uh, the phone. All right. At the uh, image, Peter. Uh, 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 G about uh, no no I'm sorry uh, image uh, uh, second figure two at echo the last yeah. one says U zero one twenty six this is the agent used to stop uh, budding and branching correct <laughs> yes um, help me out I'm turnus and I'm trying to figure. Uh, can you compare this to what's happened with the prion with the pancreas? Get the the mesenchymal cell, the the, the stem cell got sprayed and turned that migrated adenal and started the pancreas. So eventually it says you have a glomeruli back to the kidney. You have a glomeruli and nephrons and the whole thing. Would you have the whole entire structure of a kidney, a functional kidney, or just like islets of functional units? Uh, so uh, for the second part, this is not a, this, this, we, we do not have a whole functional kidney. So that's sort of the, uh, the, the holy grail, if you will, of, of this field is to, to try to get something to a functional kidney. I often draw comparisons to the field of beta cells because that's really a long and like a sort of old and established field in stem cell differentiation. The, the challenges with getting a functional kidney compared to functional beta cells is, are much, much more. So, you know, beta cells 
are endocrine cells that secrete a hormone. And um, in the approach that basically has been pioneered and is now in clinical trials for beta cells, you differentiate stem cells into beta cells and you in, in sort of implant them into patients. And it, it almost doesn't matter what structure the cells are or even where they're implanted. Um, as long as they have a blood supply, they can function and, and regulate your body's blood glucose. The kidney is, you know, almost orders of magnitude more difficult sort of architecturally because the structure is so critically important to the kidney. And this field is, is going to take a while probably to get to that point because there are so many barriers in terms of getting the right architecture and, and the architecture is so complex. My, my approach, the, there's engineers that maybe think about this problem differently from a sort of materials and engineering standpoint. I'm a developmental biologist, and, and my sort of bias is that we can never, this, this structure is so complicated and so precise that it's something we can probably never sort of micromanage and engineer. I think we have to rely on the biology. And the, the approach then is to, is to get the right biological cells that, that can do what they need to do. And my opinion is that you need the, the ureteric bud component is one of it. And then the other is the meninephric progenitors. And then if you, if you can in, independently generate both of those very well, at some point you, you'll need to be able to put them together and then try to create a functional kidney from that. So this is, is still relatively an early stage in the development of a, of a functional kidney. You know, it's possible, you know, I, I'll admit that it's possible. It might not ever be, be done from stem cells because the kidney is such a challenge um, for reasons that we probably don't have to, to get into. Great. Um, thank you. I hate to hear the word, I hate to hear, to hear the word uh, impossible. But yeah, yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I know. I, I totally <laughs> But I guess if like embryonic, all right. I'm, I'm not gonna take every time. Maybe like I will inbox you. Thank you so much. Yeah, no worries. But yeah, to reiterate, this is only part of the, part of the equation. So we're, you know, this. I'm, I'm mostly focused on this right now, just to really try to convince ourselves that this is the, this is sufficient. This is capable of recapitulating that developmental process, but it's still only part of it. You know, we're going to need the other cells too. And this paper does not have any of that. So would there be, I know I wanted to ask you this later, but kind of fits the conversation. Would there be a way to uh, take uh, parts of the kidney like to regenerate with these uh, differentiated stem cells? an existing kidney in a human to basically jumpstart its rejuvenation or regeneration by, you know, using isolates of different cell types and putting them there. Would that be maybe an intermediate step? That That is something that is sort of hypothesized to be possible. The problem as that I see is that the the adult kidney, um, so all of the processes I've described about how the kidney is built, you know, sort of from scratch in the embryo, all of that happens in a very discrete period of time. And once you get to a functional kidney, all of these progenitor cells are gone. So it the 
in this, I haven't done any of this, but the field, you know, historically over the past few decades has sort of convincingly showed there are, there are no sort of adults like stem cells or progenitor cells in the, in the adult kidney. And, and that's seen to some as a barrier to, to relying on cells from the adult, adult kidney. But we do know there's some regenerative capacity because when patients have a really bad kidney injury from a variety of reasons and their kidneys sh- sort of temporarily shut down, they can, they, there is some capacity for repair and recovery within the kidney. Um, but there are no stem cells or progenitor cells that sort of mediate that repair. It's sort of the cells under stress can, um, can, re- can repair different parts of the injured kidney. Um, they don't do it that well, to be honest, which is why you know, the kidneys are very sensitive to, to injury and to chronic disease. And that's why so many patients have kidney failure because, uh, you know, they're a very sensitive organ and over time they don't deal with stress well, and then they sort of just lose function. So that is possible. It's not, um, something that I feel like is going to be, and, but again, this is just my bias and because my expertise is in the embryology and the development. So I have a hard time seeing how that would work but it's certainly possible and people are working on that. Okay. Yeah, thank you. So you would suggest that they would just not implement themselves in the system if you would inject like a bunch of stem cells that wouldn't happen, like a bunch of stem cells maybe with some signaling, um, you know, the the trophins and stuff. Oh, oh, like some, some, some stem cells sort of differentiated and then just injecting yeah. them into the kidney. <laughs> I see. I know. Uh, probably very naive, but yeah, no, no, that's certainly possible. That's certainly something that people are interested in. So, in, in areas where maybe there was a kidney injury, and uh, sort of the repair process was inadequate or incomplete, if it, it's possible in theory to to use stem cells as without having to regenerate a whole kidney, you can use them to to generate. A specific population of cells, for example, that needs to be replaced in in, an, in a damaged kidney. That, in theory, is possible too. We still don't know enough, actually, about the development or the the differentiation technologies to do that specifically. But that is something that may come out of this type of work too. Is that you can generate, uh, and probably what happened before you can generate a whole kidney, because the whole kidney is the the biggest challenge. But um, just generating specific populations of cells that have some ability for repair is certainly reasonable. <clears throat> yeah, thank you. Um, yep. Okay. All right. So, so now I'll, I'll move on and, and really, like I said, the first two figures are, are more of the development. So now we're going to get into what are the cells, like what happens to these cells in the adult kidney and what is their function and what do they do? Um, and for the ureteric bud, they really, they form the collecting system of the kidney. And we most often think of them as forming these collecting ducts, which is uh, schematized in figure 1A. These are really important physiological structures. Um, so this is the sort of the terminal end of the nephron. So you start out in the in the glomerulus where blood is filtered. The, the fluid, which ultimately will become urine, passes through multiple different segments uh, of epithelia that make different types of modifications. The collecting system is sort of the final place. So this is um, really fine tuning the composition of the urine to meet the metabolic demands of the 
you know, the, the organism or the person. And the cells that do it are shown here. So the, the major cell type is called the principal cell, which are the yellow cells. These cells are really important for regulating water and salt, uh, especially sodium. So they help, they, they reabsorb sodium and water out of the urine and back into the body. Um, but they do it in, in a really precise way so that the kidney always knows exactly how much salt to, to, to reclaim and how much salt to excrete and how much water to reclaim and how much water to excrete. And, and really the, the, the kidney does many things, but the, the best way to sort of summarize what it does is just to say homeostasis, meaning every day that every morning that you wake up, you know, you, you have sort of the same salt concentration, the same water concentration, the same weights, everything. And it's because of the kidneys. It's almost, it doesn't matter what you eat or drink the day before, the kidneys will keep everything in perfect balance. And this is part of how they do it with these cells that are really specialized at fine tuning the salt and water and acid secretion uh, from the urine. <clears throat> and these are these all derive from the fetal structure that I've been talking about, which is the ureteric bud. So in panel B, um, yeah, I guess go to B, what we showed is that in the organoid, so again, remember at day 14, the, the structures were still very sort of embryonic or fetal. They had the branching properties and the, the progenitor cells. What we did at that stage is take away all the growth factors that sort of lead, that sort of promote the fetal state and try to get them to further differentiate into a more functional cell type. And um, when we did that, we saw a really quick, you know, just over this four day period from day 14 to day 18, a really quick uh, expression of the genes associated with principal cells. So um, ELF5 is a transcription factor. Um, aquaporin 2 or AQP2, this is uh, the water channel that the kidney uses to regulate your water balance. And then these SCNN1 genes are the salts, um, the sodium uh, channels that reabsorb salt uh, from your urine. And all of these uh, genes went up pretty significantly um, when we changed the conditions of the culture uh, so that instead of trying to promote the fetal state, we were now promoting the more adult or differentiated state. <clears throat> Figure uh, C here um, just shows the expression aquaporin 2, which is the, again the water channel. This is the most commonly used gene to mark the collecting duct, so we rely on this as well. Um, you can see it in green in the bottom right. It goes up in many of the cells in the organoids under this condition. And then in D, we show higher magnification of tubules that form within the organoids, and they have really nice expression of, of aquaporin 2, just um, not, not exclusively, but mostly localized on the apical membrane, so in the, in the inner part of the cell which is where aquaporin 2 should normally be found. Um, we did, uh, again, single cell RNA sequencing to, to further characterize these cells. And, and again, showed that our methods were very efficient. Most of the cells um, were very similar and they all sort of clustered together. About, I think 97% of them were clustered together and they expressed genes associated with, with principal cells of the collecting duct. Um, and then we, we use the, a program that has been developed um, to basically take our data set and map it against a real 
kidney data set. So an adult human kidney. And then the, the, the algorithm computationally sort of tries to predict what is the cell fate uh, of all of the cells in our organoids. And the results of that are shown in figure 3G. And what, and what we, sh and this was sort of a surprise. We knew our cells were collecting duct, uh, but this actually showed very specifically there, there this region of the collecting duct called the intermedullary collecting duct. And this is sort of the innermost terminal region of, of the collecting duct. Um, and we don't need to get into too much details, but there's several different regions of collecting duct, and, and we still don't understand why, but the organoids are only forming one of those regions, which is an interesting developmental uh, biological question. Um, so that's the, the molecular characteristics of these differentiated cells. We think they form collecting duct principal cells pretty well. The next figure, so figure four, is we start to get at the what is the function of these cells. So even though we know, of course, we only have part of the equation uh, from a tissue engineering standpoint, it's not a fully functional kidney, but we could test the function of these specific cells and say, do these cells exhibit function that a normal collecting duct cell would have? And this, uh, the, this set of experiments is, is basically the first time, I think, uh, the people have shown this from differentiated kidney cells that you can actually get really good physiologic function. So it's sort of proof of principle that the, the stem cells can form kidney cell types that exhibit something resembling their normal function in the adult state. <clears throat> and the function that we focused on is sodium uh, transport or sodium reabsorption. So figure 1A is showing the three subunits of the channel in the collecting duct, which is typically called ENAC for epithelial sodium channel. So we see that ENAC is expressed in in the organoids. So we wanted a way to measure its function. And to do that, um, we went from a three-dimensional uh, format to a two-dimensional format, because in two dimensions, you can do more electrophysiologic studies to get at these specific functional questions. So we adapted our organoids into two-dimensional cells and put them on these trans wells where we can measure voltage and resistance across the epithelium. And what we found is that the the these cells, which were derived from organoids, have really um, sort of authentic functions similar to what the collecting duct cells normally have. So figure uh, 4C is showing the resistance across the epithelium. So first of all, it's a very high resistance, um, meaning that the, the, the epithelium is very electrically sort of tight. Uh, and then figure 1, or sorry, 4D shows that over time, the cells develop a, a pretty strong transepithelial voltage. So, and I'm specifically referring to the black curves in C and D, which is sort of the, the control or baseline state. So they form a strong resistance and a strong voltage. Um, we knew that collecting duct cells or principal cells should do this. And uh, especially for the voltage, how they normally create a voltage is through this sodium channel because it's a one-way channel. Sodium only goes from the outside in. Uh, and because sodium is charged, it forms a voltage gradient across the epithelium. So to test whether the voltage was related to the sodium transport, we used uh, an inhibitor, which is called amylaride, which is a very specific inhibitor of this sodium channel. 
Uh, amiloride is actually a drug that we use clinically. Uh, it's sort of a, in the diuretic class of, of medications uh, that can uh, help patients get rid of salt in, in water uh, if we give them this through the same exact mechanism. And when we added amiloride, the transepithelial voltage basically disappeared within minutes. So, you know, we added the amiloride and measure the, the voltage and uh, within usually 30 seconds to 60 seconds, the voltage was gone meaning that the voltage that we were seeing was due to the epithelial sodium channel or ENAC. <clears throat> and we quantitated this in, in E. In F, we use just basically a different format, which is called an oozing chamber, which allows real-time measurement of the current across the membrane. And again, showed at sort of baseline. So the first you know, quarter of this red curve, there's a really strong current across the epithelium. But when we add amiloride, the current rapidly uh, diminishes and eventually goes to zero, suggesting that the, 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 the current is generated by sodium moving through this sodium channel. Um, and then in H, we show, I, I mentioned or have alluded to the fact that this is not a, the sodium reabsorption in the kidney is not in sort of an indiscriminate process. It's a really finely tuned um, uh, process that the kidney modifies urine. And one of the ways it does that is through a hormone called aldosterone. So aldosterone comes from the adrenal glands and it tells the kidney and specifically the collecting ducts to reabsorb more sodium through this sodium channel. So we showed that it, the, these cells could do the same. If we added aldosterone at increasing concentrations, we saw an increase in the amiloride sensitive current. So the cells not only can, can recapitulate the sodium reabsorption, but they do it in a hormone responsive way, similar to the normal collecting duct. And we showed that in, in I, I think is just quantitating uh, this sort of the same result. So we were really convinced and remain really convinced with these cells that they are very much like principal cells. So the, the major cell type in the collecting duct, but, um, the last figure is going to focus on a different cell type. So if you go to figure back to figure three, a, you know, principal cells are the major cell, but they're not the only cell in the collecting duct. The other cells are called intercalated cells or, and there's two types a and B. So I labeled those, I think as B um, intercalated cell or BIC and AIC. These cells don't participate in, in sodium handling and uh, like the principal cells, they do acid base regulation. So the two different types A and B basically do the opposite thing. So if you're in a state where you where you need to get rid of acid. So if you ate a, an acid rich or protein rich meal, your kidneys have to excrete the acid from your body to keep your pH normal. And they do that by through these alpha or a type intercalated cells, basically secrete protons into the urine to, to help you eliminate the acid. The B type basically do the opposite if, if they're, which is rare for sort of a Western diet that you, that you need to, um, to eliminate more of an alkaline urine, but they basically do the opposite of the A type cells. So this is a really uh, nice sort of acid-base homeostasis mechanism, the A and B intercalated cells in the urine, or sorry, in the collecting duct. <clears throat> and so figure five focuses on these cells. Um, and I'll just start by saying, even when we, when we changed our media in figure three 
um, to go from a progenitor cell to a differentiated cell, we got all principal cells. There's actually no intercalated cells that form spontaneously. And we're still not sure why, although I'm sort of following up on some of those um, hypotheses now. But the organoids only have principal cells, which is not normal for a collecting duct because there should be some intercalated cells. So we wanted to ask whether, um, before we could figure out why that is, which probably will take some time, I quickly wanted to ask whether the, the epithelium can even form intercalated cells. And so in order to do that, I, I used a genetic uh, tool to try to induce intercalated cells. And I used the virus basically to express this transcription factor called FOXI1. And FOXI1 is normally required for intercalated cells to form in the collecting duct. So this allowed us to sort of cheat and see if we express this, this gene will intercalated cells form? And indeed they did. So figure uh, 5C, <clears throat> I think I would focus on the middle panel. So in the middle panel, the, the green cells are aquaporin 2, so those are principal cells. And then the red cells express a marker, which is the, a proton pump found in intercalated cells. You can see in the control condition, we have only green cells, no red cells. Uh, but in the with, the, with this virus, we add a chemical called uh, doxycycline to induce the gene expression. We see the emergence of the red intercalated cells. So you can see that um, in the bottom right. Um, I'll skip D and E, that's not too important. So, so this was good evidence that even though the, uh, the organoids aren't normally forming intercalated cells, it shows that they can form intercalated cells under some circumstances. So then finally, we wanted to test, uh, similar to how we were just testing the function of the principal cells, we wanted to see if we could test the function of the intercalated cells. And we did that through very similar experiments. The first thing we noticed was that when we added this gene or, or when we stimulated this gene with doxycycline, it totally just changed the, the electrophysiologic properties of the cells. The, First in F, the the resistance uh, went down significantly. Um, and then in G, the voltage was ha was very different. And sorry, this is a little complicated. I'm going to try to focus. Let's focus on H. So H is the current. So um, and then blue is the the control cells. So what we already know are like the principal cells. And then the yellow is the uh, the the doxycycline-treated cells that, sh that should behave more like intercalated cells. So in the without adding any drugs, we see the opposite parameter. So instead of having this negative current across the epithelium, these cells had a positive current, so already a dramatic change. And, and the, the sign positive or negative is sort of arbitrary. And then when we added amylaride to the control cells, and again, amylaride is the sodium channel inhibitor, the current went away completely but it was really unchanged in the, in the intercalated cell culture. So then we tested a different chemical called baphylomycin, which inhibits the proton pump of intercalated cells and saw that that was enough to get the current to go away. So this was, um, and then I is sort of summarizing that, showing that um, under the normal circumstances, we have a milleride sensitive current, which is sodium current, but when we add doxycycline, these cells switch from a sodium current to a baphylomycin-sensitive current, which is a proton-generated current, uh, consistent with the function of, of intercalated cells. 
Um, in J, we, we do that, uh, again, similarly in the Usin chamber, showing that uh, in the Dutch state, the, the properties are just radically different where um, they don't respond much to amylaride, but when we add baphylomycin, the, the current starts to approach zero. And then what might be the easiest thing to appreciate is in K and L. And we notice this, you know, in real time in the cultures that the cell, the media, so these are in trans wells, so we can separate the, ap so the, the media on the apical membrane from the basolateral. And what we saw was that the, the medium in, in the dox state always appeared very yellow very quickly. And for those who don't know, all of these, uh, this, these cell culture media have a pH indicator, which is why they're pink. And when they start to become more acidic, they turn yellow. And so we eventually realized what we were seeing is that the function of these intercalated cells was acidifying the media. So within, you know, overnight, we would change fresh media and then overnight the media is yellow again. And in L, you can see that it's actually a very specific um, sort of acidification. So there's two chambers. There's a top and the bottom. The bottom is still completely pink, but the top layer is yellow, meaning that not only are the cells sort of moving protons, but they're doing it in a very specific direction. So they're only moving protons in from the bottom to the top, which is similar to what intercalated cells would do that are trying to get rid of, of, of acid from your body and and pump it into the urine. And then we can actually measure this pH difference using uh, using a pH meter. So this was actually, as far as we know, and we're pretty certain that this is the first time this sort of function from intercalated cells from any source has been demonstrated in vitro because intercalated cells in general are very hard to grow. If you try to isolate them out of a, a real kidney and grow them in culture and do these experiments, they actually convert to principal cells. So um, th this is interesting and there's a lot of potential here because this is the first time we've, somebody has shown this kind of function and, and we can do this very easily with this genetic system where we add doxycycline and we induce this phenotype in the cells. Um, so, and that's that. So basically just, uh, I guess to, to conclude, you know, the developmental stuff, which honestly is this, the, 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 Part of the project that I'm most interested in and, and really what drove this, but then we get the functional outcomes of, of the sodium uh, absorbing principal cells and the proton secreting intercalated cells. And this is the, uh, what, what I consider sort of proof of principle that you can, you can get functional cells from stem cells, functional kidney cells from stem cells. Uh, again, you know, I can't, I spend a lot of my time thinking about the engineering hurdles of actually getting a functional kidney, but at least we showed here that we can get functional cells, which is what I consider sort of a first step. And I think that's basically the whole paper. So now we can move to a Q&A. Thank you so much, Kyle. Uh, that was, it's so impressive work and it's so much work. So thank you so much for doing this and then also for presenting this. Um, it's really impressive. When I thought, when I saw like the battery of tests you are um, <clears throat> developing um, in the process of this, these projects, do you think, like, would you be interested like to take one day 
Or would you think it would make sense to take one day cells from people that where their kidney fails and see if they, if you turn them back into stem cells and redevelop them again to see, do you think there would be anything different in the development or at some point, would you see differences in these tests? Like maybe their sodium and the, maybe the voltage would be different. The resistance would be different. Do you, do you think you could detect something there and learn something from it? How and why uh, people's kidneys fail? Yeah, so I think just, I think the question is sort of getting at um, whether, you know, the being cells that are in a failing kidney, are they going to be somehow changed in a way that we can measure in using these mm -hmm. systems? Um, well, they are for sure, right? But they are, yeah. So the thing about yeah. kidney failure is, you know, I mentioned in the beginning that the, um, you know, basically in humans, we're born with, there's a range, but let's say on average, total of 1 million nephrons and each nephron is, is a functional unit. And, and most kidney failure basically just happens when you gradually lose um, nephrons. So you start with a million and over however many years you start to lose function for a variety of reasons. What's actually interesting is that when you start to lose nephrons, the, the functional nephrons that are still there actually try to compensate by increasing their function, um, you know, which is sort of makes sense. Um, so the cells that are still there are almost overactive and in some ways that can be counterproductive. Um, but then eventually, you know, either those cells can't keep up or you lose more and more of them to the point that you, your kidneys don't function well at all. So it's an interesting question about how, yeah, to figure out what's, how that process changes the, the function. The problem with one of the problems with kidney disease is there's so many different things that, that cause kidney disease and they, they might all have different mechanisms, but that, I think your question overall would, is interesting. The problem is we don't know how to take cells out of a kidney and get them back into stem cells. So that's, it's not as active in the kidney as it is in other fields, but a, a small number of groups have, have tried that. Um, but those technologies don't exist yet either. Sorry, I rambled for a little bit, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I was trying to figure out if there's maybe some developmental mechanism in common and people where the kidneys fail that we could pre-detect and I don't know, through some sequ RNA sequencing or so, I don't know, develop like a I see. test, you know. The tissue well, injury for the kidney injury. Yeah, maybe, I don't know, if you take any cell and turn them into kidneys, would they still have the same type of kidney failure characteristic? Maybe it's very, very far-fetched. Probably it is. But I was just thinking maybe you could, there is something you could do with those tests to, like, screen people in general. But, um, yeah, thank you so much for answering that. And I'll yeah. give yeah. No worries. Well, you can actually, you know, that this is part of the reason why I became a nephrologist is it's, it's actually, it's very, kidney is very quantitative and you, it's actually very accessible because you can, me you can measure certain aspects of how the kidney is functioning in the urine. 
so this this assay of um i know this is you're, you're talking something more you know in in a sort of in an experimental system or something you know predictive or diagnostic whatever but um the this process of sodium reabsorption we actually do measure that routinely in patients by measuring their sodium their urine sodium so when patients have overactive principal cells their urine sodium is actually goes down very low it can actually go down to um less than like one percent of of their serum sodium level so the kidney can really concentrate sodium very well through this mechanism and we can directly measure that by measuring the sodium in the urine obviously that measuring that is very complicated because it's in the setting of a kidney and an, a person it's not a simplified sort of isolated system like this would be so it's 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 an interesting thought but you can actually directly you know measure surrogates of these same processes in in by by measuring different things in a patient's urine yeah thank you yeah um uh, uh dr shah um Elizabeth, I know you had the question. Um, I have a best Nick, welcome. Please go ahead. Okay, thank you so much, Kai. That was a really fascinating research that you shared with us. In one hand, I can think about the bio-artificial kind of kidney. And also I had several questions about the, I mean, you mentioned about the, uh, I mean, TF or FOXY1 and as well as the, a couple of the points that you you, you mentioned about the types of the uh, enzyme and ATPs that you just use for your research. And mm -hmm. when I just pay attention, it it can be related to the some of the condition like a renal tubular acidosis. And we know that uh, we have a sensory neural hearing loss. I was just wondering, did you, I may have further information around that? Yes. So, yeah, it's a really cool question. Um, so the question is, what is the, could this, could we relate this work to a condition called renal tubular acidosis? And the answer is yes. So, um, so renal tubular acidosis is a rare condition for the most part. Um, in, so I'm in pediatric nephrology in, um, we do see patients on occasion that have a genetic form of renal tubular acidosis. Adults can sometimes get this condition from drugs that can cause dysfunction of the kidney tubules. Um, but I'll focus on the genetic diseases. So, uh, because I think you were alluding to the same, the, uh, so this condition is where the kidney otherwise functions normally, but it can't get rid of acid. So that acid accumulates in your blood. Uh, in this case, babies and children, and it causes a lot of problems like growth defects and, and causes them to be sick. Um, there, this is a direct, this would be a, a great model to study that actually, because so there's a handful of genes known for renal tubular acidosis. Some of them are these, um, these ATPases, like the ATP6V1B1, which is actually the one that we were using. So that's a gene that can cause uh, renal tubular acidosis. Also, FOXI1, the gene that we use to induce intercalated cells. So we basically showed that gain of function of FOXI1 induces intercalated cells. In patients, they, there are some patients that have a loss of function of the same gene, and they don't have intercalated cells, and they have a renal tubular acidosis. So the intercalated cells are really the main drivers 
renal tubular acidosis. And so if you wanted to test, um, for example, a new gene or something that was identified in a patient with renal tubular acidosis, this would be a great system because I think all of those mechanisms are intact from the FOPSI1 expression to the proton excretion. And, and that's something that is actually really interesting uh, and a good, good idea because um, our stem cells are very amenable to genetic manipulation. So you can, re you can recreate patient mutations in cells and then make organoids and test the intercalated cell development and intercalated cell function. Yeah, that was a very uh, observant and insightful question. Uh, um, yeah, so we are thinking about the 3P and 5P searching, both of them. Uh, we can just locate both of them uh, based on a duplication association. Sorry, what were the or genes again? What did you say? 5P and 3P13. Because when we are thinking oh. about Fox, Fox yeah. one and another one, they are both, I mean, genetically in the same chromosome. And when we're thinking about duplication association with developmental delay, I was just ah. thinking about that. Interesting. Yeah, you can feel free to email me if you're interested. And that sounds kind of cool. Um, and then you, you alluded this, I find this as a developmental biologist and biologist pool. Um, uh, you alluded or basically said that patients that have renal tubular acidosis, they often also have hearing defects. And that's because, and we see this a lot in development, the same sort of gene modules are used in different, in the development of different organs. And it just, it turns out that the the sort of module that regulates intercalated cell development and function, so FOXI1, these proton pumps, et cetera, are also involved in, in the development of the inner ear. So those things, yeah, we see that in pediatric cases where they go hand in hand in patients that have a genetic uh, RTA or acido renal tubular acidosis often have hearing defects as well. It's very interesting. Yeah, because the secondary part is treatable, even with the stem cells, but the first cause or root cause we don't have that much yeah that's, that's, a, that's why that is a problem yeah no um no no treatment for a genetic problem yet thank you so much i'm passing the mic to the next person and i might email you later all right thank you five j the spikes what would that be equivalent to in a human system so those were artificially generated spikes where the asterisks are in figure five. Yeah. yeah. So those were, um, in, to be honest, the, the sort of electrophysiology component is not my, my forte, although I learned a lot in doing this project. So those spikes are when we basically injected, um, a voltage pulse into the system and the spikes reflect the resistance. So basically, um, and I have to sometimes write this out to remind myself. So by Ohm's law, if you have a higher, so you, if you inject a steady voltage, if you see a, a larger change in current, then that means there's a smaller resistance. Um, so basically, um, and, and we didn't actually go into details, although when we did these experiments, the, the, the physiologists that were there were, were really impressed with how high the resistance of these cells were. So it, especially in the control cells, we injected, I think it was one volt uh, pulses, and, and you saw actually relatively small change in, in the current in those sort of oscillating spikes. 
Uh, and then the, the resistance, similar to in one in 5F, the resistance goes down with intercalated cells, which this is all sort of consistent, although might sound a little hand wavy that the intercalated cells are, are not going to generate as tight of an epithelium or as electrically, I guess, resistant or tight. Um, so that's why we think the resistance goes down when we add doxycycline, because the intercalated cells just are not as good at forming a tight barrier. Um, but that's what those spikes are. Those are uh, voltage pulses to sort of measure the resistance. Okay. And so I made me think of the kind of electrical impulses that your body sends out, say, in a light or fright situation, and how the an impaired neurological system might alter the function of the kidney. Can you speak to that, please? Yeah. Um, that is something, uh, the neurologic regulation of the kidney. There's not as much known about it. Um, the, the, the one thing I often think about is kidney transplant. So um, we, you know, kidney transplant is the most common type of organ transplant. And even in kids, we do a lot of kidney transplants on an annual basis. And I find it interesting that, you know, basically when you transplant the organ, you'd lose any sort of, well, not maybe not completely, but you you're going to lose most of the neurologic regulation or input into the, the kidney. And it turns out it doesn't really dramatically change the function. Um, kid, transplanted kidneys are not 100% normal, but they're pretty good and in a lot of ways indistinguishable from normal kidney function. So it's, I, it's not essential, I guess, that they have some sort of innervation or neurologic input. But um, the kidney is also a very, as I've been saying, it's it's really good at homeostasis and it's extremely precise and relies on tons of sort of hormonal and other types of feedback mechanisms. And I would not be surprised if there were some neural component as well, which is probably parasympathetic, like you, you have said. Uh, it's just not really well elucidated what that is because it is true that transplanted kidneys, while they function normally under normal conditions, they are not as good at adapting to sort of stressful situations. And that could be, I don't know, but it could be some neurologic um, component. Do those nerves grow back? I honestly don't think anybody knows the answer to that. Um, and there's not, there's actually no major like nerve. There's no single major nerve that kind of goes with the, that innervates the kidney. There probably are sort of like sympathetic. Well, there there are definitely sympathetic fibers and and things like that. But I I don't think that that has really been, been characterized very well in the kidney at all. It would be interesting to look. The And it seems to me that um, the proton pump would be very necessary in that kind of case of fight or flight. If the person really did have to run, then they would want higher blood pressure, so they would want to keep more, increase the aldosterone. And keep more of the sodium in the bloodstream so that you could actually get a higher um, yes. volume of blood? Yeah, so there are, more blood. This, there, there are um, uh, definitely like sort of hormonal or even neurohormonal influences on the kidney. So cortisol, for example, which is going to be elevated in a sympathetic like flight or fight response, that... Um, 
uh, that does affect the kidney and it does affect the collecting duct and it does exactly what you're describing or predicting that it would do. It's going to cause the kidneys to retain more sodium, which sort of then causes them to retain more water, increases your blood volume exactly. So cortisol does that. Um, thinking about epinephrine or norepinephrine, they, they probably do that to some extent too, but cortisol and, and the adrenal hormones are the ones that are, are most famous for regulating the sodium and, and fluid retention in the collecting duct. Are certain cells more prone to decay than others? So for example, could somebody actually lose more of one kind of cell, lose more of the primary cells and keep the rest or lose more of the uh, A acid cells or the base cells? And have you I ever seen that kind of a disease? And maybe that's something we could um, try to work on with stem cell therapy. So most of the, yeah, good question. Most of the diseases that affect the kidney, like the really common things like diabetes, high blood pressure, et cetera, those sort of cause a general, a chronic process that leads to scarring and sort of indiscriminate degeneration of different parts of the kidney. Um, but there are, there are sort of more rare causes that are interesting to me with this system to look at. So one of them is, is lithium toxicity. So uh, lithium is a medication used to, to treat mood disorders like bipolar disorder. And it's actually very effective um, in, in a lot of cases. Psychiatrists, at least from my understanding, the psychiatrists like to use it because it's effective in, in stabilizing patients' moods. Um, the problem is even lithium in trace amounts and trace that? amounts, even, even in trace amounts, which is why I wonder why they always prescribe such high doses. <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, but the, one of the problems with, with the doses they do prescribe is that it causes kidney problems and the kidney problems are almost always in the collecting duct. So exactly what I'm talking about. And, and the reason is actually physiologic. So lithium is a, um, uh, monovalent or yeah, monovalent positive, you know, cation. So very similar to sodium. And, and this is known that the lithium is transported in the kidney, very similar to sodium. And so this epithelial sodium channel or ENAC in the principal cells, um, uh, reabsorbs lithium in patients that are prescribed lithium. And one of the possible side effects or toxicities is they get a condition where the principal cells don't work specifically. So that ends up, it actually affects their sodium concentration. It goes really high. Um, and it, it, it basically impairs, you know, because it causes general principal cell dysfunction. And so the functions of the principal cell are sodium regulation and water regulation. So it's, at, it, it's actually a very, um, it can be very problematic uh, uh, for the patients. And, and often the psychiatrist will, will have to discontinue the medication, even if it's effective because of these kidney toxicities. And that's a rare example, but I think a very fascinating example of one specific cell type in, in the tubule being affected, whereas the intercalated cells are not affected. And actually seems like the intercalated cells in that condition, at least in animal models, expand. So there's more intercalated cells than normal and the principal cells don't function. So that's a, 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 cyst, a, a disease, you know, I guess it's a you know, a drug induced, but it's a disease process that I think this system would be really useful in modeling to try to Thank figure you. out. Yeah, good question. No, okay. Um, all right, uh, Dr. Kyle, amazing stuff. 
Thank you for sharing this great information and uh, kudos to pediatric nephrologist. It's a little bit above my pay grade. Uh, just a quick question. Uh, I just used the example for the beta cells with the prion for the pancreas. Can we get, I understand it's a complete organ versus a one line of cells from the mesenchymal yeah. cells. What do you think, like the stats now, if you could compare what's going on with the myocardium right now? And uh, the second part will be, would you think of some kind of biological scaffolding system where you can both like the 3D printer, we can use like the cells on a 3D printer and try to figure like, because I know it's complicated, but even the subarenal gland and all mm -hmm. the hormones, I, yeah. I know how tough it is. And there's a lot we're missing about the biofeedbacks between the pituitary you have to talk to each other in the subarenal and the kidney because it goes through the blood and comes back. And that's what the kidney exactly does. So this is two points. Yeah, so um, I'm actually probably not as up to date as I could be on the, the myotardium and the heart regeneration, although my understanding is there that is something that is there's a lot of promise, I think, in the in the scaffolding approach, basically in some other engineering approaches to get the, the sort of pump architecture of the heart. Um, I think there is, there are similar approaches in the kidney. So one, I think something that people are looking at is using a, a scaffold, like a decellularized scaffold. If you take like a pig kidney or some, some kidney and get rid of all the cells, can you use that as a, a scaffold to nucleate the formation of, of the kidney from stem cells? So that's something that is an active area of research, but it, again, um, is still pretty immature as far as I know, compared to other organ systems that are trying to do that because, um, you know, I guess for, for several reasons, the kidneys just seems to be a little behind, but, uh, so that's something people are doing and that would be, you know, one way to overcome potentially the, the problem of, of the complex architectures, just to use one that's already sort of preformed and built. Um, the other, the other, you know, there's a lot of other potential engineering approaches like um, what, yeah, and I wish I knew these better. So like a three, using a 3D printed scaffold, that would be possible to eventually you're going to have to scale it up to something large. And I'm sure that technology yeah. will be there. With the nanotechnology, you can actually yeah. with the scale. Okay, right now you can do up to uh, 10. Oh, actually six. Yes, six uh, angstroms. It, oh wow wow okay i think i think personally that the 3d printing is going to be useful for even if you can generate my approach which is just to differentiate the developmental progenitor pools and mix them together they still need some sort of instruction as to like you know which end is the outlet and which end is you know the other the other side so i think i think some combination of the biology and the the scaffold is going to be required to get something that resembles normal kidney but it's um, what exactly that looks like. I think there's many possibilities and it's really too early to rule any in or out. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, Abyss, yeah, go ahead. Um, thanks, Kat. Um, thanks, Kyle. This is really interesting work and uh, I'm really interested to see where this is going to go. Um, I have a couple of questions for you based on your uh, research paper. I guess like the first one is that um, 
when you have these intercalated cells, um, especially um, the ones that actually pump proton into, into like the extracellular ma matrix, I'm just curious, like, is there a possibility for their performance to be hindered based on the acidity of the urine that's been made? So basically they're responding to blood, blood pH, but I'm just wondering if there is kind of like a reverse effect where you have excess amount of damnation uh, causing, you know, more acidity in the, uh, the glomeruli filtrate. Mm. Yeah. Good question. The, and I probably, I, I, I probably sound like this all the time. Like I'm trying to sell people on how cool the kidney is, but I really do think it's, it's really amazing. So the kidney under completely normal circumstances. So healthy people, healthy kidneys walking around, depending on what their diet is, the kidney can basically generate urine over a range of pH, basically 8.5 all the way down to about 5, 5 to 5.5, actually 5, which means, you know, from chemistry then that the, the kidney, uh, a pH of three units or more means there's like a thousand fold range of, of proton concentration. So the kidney is amazingly efficient at concentrating uh, different things. So whether it's sodium or protons or, or toxins that it wants to get rid of, it's really remarkable that it can do this. So even if the urine pH is low, like down to six, the kidneys can still force more and more protons into that urine if, the, if there is a physiological need or reason to do so. So you know, at some point you can overwhelm it and maybe say like it'll max out when the urine pH is down to five, but that's not usually common that you can overwhelm the kidney under any sort of normal circumstances. Does that, does that sort of get, is that directly answering your question? I think, I think that's what you were asking, which was an interesting question. Yeah, it was. It did, it did answer my question. Thank you. Um, in the, in, question is oh yeah, that, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. No, no, please do. Yeah. So my second question was that um, you mentioned that there are two types of uh, uh, IC cells that are that either pump proton or uh, it's like um, hydrox I mean, uh, hydroxy, I think. Yeah. OH ions. So I'm, I'm curious, is there um, a shift in operability? Like, for example, if the if a person is actually, you, know, you said that this is predominantly affected by diet. So if their person is getting used to a diet that would make their blood more alkaline compared to acidic, um, is there sort of like a change in functionality between these two IC cells? Yeah, that, that's that a, an, yeah, no, that not, not only makes sense, you are 100% accurate that, that, that there is, uh, basically there's, um, and this is more known from animal studies, although, you know, we sort of indirectly observe it in humans. Uh, the, the two populations of intercalated cells are sort of, there's a lot of plasticity between them. And what animal studies have shown is that you can basically um, change the composition of the collecting duct, uh, depending on what, in animal studies, what the diet was. So if you feed them an acid-rich diet, you're you're going to end up with collecting nuts that are full of A-type intercalated cells to get rid of the acid. But if you change the diet so that they have a more alkaline diet, you'll actually completely flip that and you'll 
the the A intercalated cells will basically disappear and you'll see all B type intercalated cells. So it's a very adaptable system, um, even at the, the level of the cell, the cell differentiation status. And um, that's something I'm really fascinated by. And the, the actual sort of molecular mechanisms that are responsible for that are not known even remotely. And it's something I'm interested in looking at because I didn't really go into it much in this talk and did a little bit in the paper. But when we, when we induce the gene to induce intercalated cells in the three-dimensional organoids, we only got one type. We only got the B type. But when we did it in the two-dimensional state, we only get the A type. And I think this system would actually be really good at basically studying that adaptability of the collecting duct to, to modulate the composition based on the physiologic demand. So can we figure out what are the signals or stimuli that are directly and the mechanisms that are responsible for changing A and B type, depending on whether you're in an acidic environment or an alkaline environment? Really cool question. Yeah, thank you for that question. I was so. Does it only so? Is there still adaptability? There's no adaptability in adults, right? There is. Yeah, this is true in adults. Yep. Yeah. At least it's it's thought to be people. You know, we I I don't think we have direct. You know, we can't do the experiments to directly test that. But I I think there's indirect evidence that that's probably still happening in adults. So there's plasticity and fluidity in the collecting ducts, even though there's no progenitor or stem cells, it's the, there seems to be a potential to change cell states depending on the, on the, on the needs. So was it in history more, sorry, my kids is <laughs> playing with the dog. Um, was it more usual to have different type of pH level diets back in time than it is now? Because I don't know, changes of, fruits and, and stuff availability with the season? Like, like yes. Because we are and always I, using the same diet, are we like stressing the kidneys in a way that they were not really built for because they were used to switch around a little bit? Yeah, this is a really interesting topic and, and there's a, some really cool... Um, sort of case studies or anecdotes of this. I think in general, yes, like things are different. So, and I wish I, I should know this better, but I, I think I think as a nephrologist, most of the sort of acid load is coming from protein. So if you had more of a, a vegetarian type of diet, like I guess people do that now too, but even like as ancestral humans, there probably were going to be different demands. I don't think, although it's, it's hard to know, I think the kidney is is extremely good at adaptation and even things that we think are kind of extreme, the kid, it's sort of easy for the kidney because of how robust it is functionally. So I'm not sure if it's causing a stress, but it is different. Um, one example is not for the acid, but it's for sodium, which is, I don't want to take up too much time, but it's a really interesting study. There's a um, uh, an indigenous tribe in South America and I can't remember the name, and I don't think I would pronounce it correctly anyway, but they've been studied in this field because in, I don't want to over bore you with details, but al the aldosterone, which is the hormone that tells the collecting duct to reabsorb sodium, that is released um, 
through a variety of stimuli, but it's thought to have, it actually correlates pretty poorly with, uh, or it correlates well with poor outcomes with like heart disease and kidney disease. Like if you have higher aldosterone levels, you're more likely to have problems with heart and kidney. And then when you combine that with a high sodium diet, like, which is kind of normal, um, Western, especially American diet that, that actually compounds it. So that's really going to worsen your disease and your outcomes potentially. But what's interesting is this tribe, they eat a, a really strict sort of vegetarian diet. And I, I don't remember the details, but their sodium consumption is almost zero. So they almost eat, I think the amount of sodium they eat on average in a day is equivalent to that in one potato chip. And their diet based on the vegetables they eat is super high in, in potassium, which is another ion that I haven't talked about that the collecting duck deals with. And they have compared to what we're typically eating, they eat almost astronomical amounts of potassium. So it really changes the demands of their kidneys. So our kidneys, the task is usually to excrete sodium because we eat so much sodium, the kidney just gets rid of most of it. And then with potassium, it'll sort of just keep that in balance. In this, in these people, they, they, they don't excrete sodium because they don't eat any sodium and they just have to excrete huge amounts of potassium. And they have really high aldosterone levels because aldosterone helps get rid of potassium. And so people would predict that they would have really, potentially they'd be prone to heart disease or kidney disease. And they're actually, not shockingly, they don't have heart disease or kidney disease. They're actually, they have lower blood pressures. They, they, they have excellent heart health. And so it's led people to really say that like aldosterone itself is not bad. It's sort of aldosterone in the setting of a sort of a Western or modernized diet um, where you combine aldosterone with high sodium is the problem. And so that's, a I think, is physiologically a really interesting scenario. And it's a good example of of how the evolutionary sort of mechanisms have really been overwhelmed probably by sort of modern modernization of lifestyle and diet and things like that. Yeah, thank you. That's interesting. And then the blue blue zones, uh, there's, I think the studies say like less animal protein, more veg more fresh, fresh vegetables and stuff. So it kind of correlates a little bit there. But yeah, thank you. It's very interesting. I think Nick was there if you have time for another question sorry we've been going on for a while you're probably tired by now no no it's fine yeah no problem <laughs> okay thank you nick are you still there i uh, thank you for waiting oh uh, yeah I, i'm here but uh, probably if my question is the last one will be probably the dumbest question and then uh, you would like to close the room fast but anyway I'll, i still ask it i sorry i i couldn't um hear your presentation, but just very quick uh, yes and no answers would be uh, great to me. Um, in your study, which you described this in this article, which is posted here in this room, do you develop kidneys uh, using uh, pluripotent stem cells? Not full kidneys. I think only only part of a developing developmental stage of a kidney. Um, so definitely not full kidney. Okay, uh, this is what I thought because the kidney has many cells basically, right? And it will be difficult. Is it possible in theory to take one pluripotent stem cell and develop all the different kinds of cells you can find in the kidney or it's not possible? It should be possible, right? Yeah, I think it's totally possible if you if you develop the system correctly. It's, it's challenging, but possible, yes. 
Okay, so another technique um, uh, perhaps is uh, using uh, pig cells from the kidney, right? Can you use these cells to uh, generate uh, a human kidney or not really? This is probably the dumbest question you've heard for a long time. Well, it's not a dumb question. I think, well, you, you, I mean, sort of by definition, you can't generate human cells from a pig kidney. But what you can, well, there's, this is a very active area that is, uh, there was big news last year about, of basically trying to use a pig, just directly put a pig kidney into a human and see if it can function. So that is something that's actually probably much more advanced in terms of getting closer to patients of, because uh, a pig kidney is very similarly sized and seeing whether that can substitute for a human kidney transplant in a patient that can't otherwise get one. Okay, and in general, can you use at least uh, uh, pig, um, pig uh, pluripotent stem cells to develop human kidneys or not really? I think not really because I, there's, I don't know that there's much advantage to doing that because if you're starting from the pluripotent cell, you might as well just use the human because you have all of the same sort of barriers to get to the, the functional kidney. Okay, thank you. No problem, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much uh, for... Could I ask a question? I, yeah, Kyle, is it okay? It's really yeah, up to yeah. Kyle. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. I don't think so. About this protein wars we have going on where the phys uh, physical exercise people are saying, oh, you have to eat 35 grams of protein immediately after a workout and there should be at least 100 grams of protein per day versus the blue zones um, people. I'm wondering if it matters how... The, how frequently the the rate of protein intake versus the amount. So if it's a slower rate of intake, so, so say if somewhere we're on an IV protein, would that make a huge difference in how the kidney function versus having meals of protein over? So I think this, I think these things get at more of sort of global metabolism of the protein within the body and uh, things in the liver and muscles and things more than the kidney. The kidney, I think, is probably sort of ambivalent or agnostic almost to what what where the protein comes from. You know, the kidney thinks more in terms of molecules like protons and ions and things like that. So the kidney can deal with any of that. Um, I think the my guess is that a lot of those hypotheses center on how the protein is going to be metabolized if it goes through the intestine or or directly into the the blood or something like that. But I can't talk too intelligently about that because I don't think the kidney matter, cares quite so much. So it's more about the acidification process that occurs in metabolizing protein than it yeah, is. Yeah, exactly. So from the cumulative metabolism and all of the different tissues that metabolize protein, they're going to generate um, acidic waste products that then the kidney is responsible for excreting. So sort of that's why I say... The, kidney probably doesn't matter how that acid is generated or like, you know, what form of protein or when the protein was consumed. It just knows it has to get rid of it. And the spilling protein that the kidneys do when they spill protein, it's because there's too much in there or because there's a damaged kidney? It's due to a damage in the filters of the kidney. So it has, is totally unrelated to protein intake and is only due to uh, problems in the fil in the kidney filters that normally are supposed to exclude protein from the the urine, and sometimes and sometimes they get a little leaky. Yep.
Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for um, presenting your amazing work and then answering so many questions. We really appreciate it. You've been so patient. And... Oh, no problem. A lot of good <laughs> questions. It was fun. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. That's perfect when we all have fun and we are not just parasitic group. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm glad. And yeah, please feel always invited to come back when you have maybe, um, you know, something new to share. And uh, probably you never have time available, but when you can make time maybe next year or so, that would be wonderful. And yeah, thank you so much for doing this again. Okay, no problem. I'd be happy to. Thanks for the invite and thanks everybody for participating. Yeah, uh, yeah. Thank you, everyone. And if you like rooms like this, follow the club, then you get like updates when we have rooms. We will have tomorrow another room this week um, with Dr. Guerra. Um, he will talk about um, plasma-based oxygen production for Mars. Um, how we can make some oxygen on Mars um, in a way that um, kind of makes us survive there or grow plants and stuff for a while. So um, if you're interested in that, feel free to come back. And um, yeah, thank you, Kyle. I hope I hear you all back soon and enjoy the rest of your evening, morning, wherever you are. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Click three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Thank.